Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, our flash fiction contest is now closed, and I'm absolutely blown away. More than 50 entries. So many amazing and diverse tales inspired by a single dark muse. Looks like we've got our work cut out for us over the next couple of weeks, deciding who takes home the infernal crown of Tales to Terrify's first-ever flash fiction contest. I'll make sure to keep you updated. In other flash news, just a quick heads up that we'll be taking a break from flashback episodes for a few weeks as we enter the summer. I'd love to hear what you think about the flashbacks, Children of the Night. Is that something you'd like to hear more of? That you'd like us to keep going? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop me a line via email, or on our social channels. Speaking of keeping things going, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon for keeping the lights on and flickering ominously. Thanks this week to Kaylee, John Rowe, Ebot, and Sissy Van Dyke for your support, and to our newest patron, Patrick Zisselberger. You've warmed the icy blood flowing through this blackened heart. Thank you. I know it's been a tough time for many of you financially, so I want to say an extra thank you 
to everyone for supporting us through Patreon or PayPal over the last few months, and to everyone who continues to listen. For anyone whose situation has changed and is no longer able to support us, we're so thankful for everything you've done for us so far, and I'm glad you're doing the right thing by taking care of yourself. I hope you'll continue to indulge with us each week and a little taste of these dark delights. Also, before I forget, congratulations to the winners of our Becky Movie Contest. Facebook followers Leslie Loveless and Daniel Casbeer, who each won a free download of the new movie starring Kevin James. I'd love to hear what you think. This week finds us smack dab in the middle of the province of British Columbia. Surrounded by the Canadian Rockies, nestled in the V where the Fraser and Quesnel rivers meet, the city of Quesnel, B.C. is a picturesque little community. Surrounded by parks and lakes and more parks, most of the tourist attractions the city boasts are on the outdoorsy side. But one attraction that's drawn visitors from around the globe is of a decidedly less sunny disposition. Donated to the Quesnel and District Museum in 1991, one look at Mandy is all you'll need to immediately feel there's something uncommon about the antique porcelain doll. Discovered by a new mother while cleaning out her grandmother's house, the woman had brought the doll home. An heirloom like that needed to stay in the family, she thought, even if it was a little unnerving. The lacy dress was yellowed and frayed with age, and the doll's stuffed body was torn in places, dusty cotton filling peeking out from the seams. But it was the doll's face that really left her feeling uneasy. The porcelain skin was marred and discolored. Large cracks crisscrossed the skin around her right eye, and the small glass eyeball seemed to strain against the socket a gleam coming from deep within the shiny glass, making it look almost wet, almost alive. After taking the doll home, the woman set it aside and all but forgot about it. With a newborn baby at home, she had plenty more pressing things on her mind. That night, she was awoken by a shrill scream, the sound of a baby crying. Any new parent knows there's an almost automatic physical response when your newborn wakes up crying. She picked up the baby monitor from her nightstand and listened. Again, the cry came, but not from the baby monitor. Was it broken, or maybe the battery had died? Exhausted, she dragged herself out of bed and shuffled down the hallway to her daughter's room. Peering in through the cracked nursery door, she could make out the sleeping form of her daughter in the soft glow of the nightlight, lying peacefully in her crib, tiny chest rising and falling in a gentle rhythm. As she carefully opened the door to check on the baby monitor, the warmth suddenly drained from her body, replaced with a deep, hollow iciness. From somewhere deeper within the house came a forlorn wail. An infant's cry, full of longing and despair. But her baby girl slept on, just feet away. 
gathering as much courage as her sleep-deprived brain could muster. She crept from the nursery and down the stairs, following the mournful howls. But even once she reached the main floor, the sound continued to come from below her. The basement. Of course it had to be coming from the basement. Every fiber of her screamed for her to stop, to head upstairs, get into bed, and pull the covers over her head until it stopped, or sleep claimed her. But she slowly fought her way down the basement stairs, each step heavier than the last. At the bottom of the stairs, the sound was clear and intense. She felt around for the string to the basement light, wrapped it around her hand, and tugged. As the light clicked to life, the cry stopped. The basement was empty, aside from boxes and shelves. It was cold in the basement, though, colder than usual, and there was a strange breeze. That's when she realized the small window in the room had been pushed open, the crisp night air blowing in from outside. She searched the basement, sure there must be some reason for the sound, but found nothing. No speakers or radios that could have sparked to life and made the noise. No lost infants hiding in the shadows. Bewildered, but a little relieved despite herself, she closed the window, switched off the light, and went back upstairs. As she made her way through the main floor toward her bedroom, she glanced over at the living room and her heart caught in her throat. A baby sat on the chair in the living room. The doll, she quickly realized. But it seemed more unnerving than ever, its glassy eyes following her across the room. She was just jumpy, that's all. The sounds earlier had startled her. She shivered and continued up to bed. The crying didn't return that night, but the following night, and the night after that, she continued to be woken by the sound of a wailing infant from the basement, a sound made that much more troubling by the fact she had an infant of her own to care for who also occasionally woke in the middle of the night crying. She'd have to get up, check on her daughter, then creep down to the basement, where she'd inevitably find the window open. And then there was the doll. Something about it seemed tied to the sound. She was sure of it, the way it would glare at her in the middle of the night. So she decided to do the only logical thing. Get rid of it. But she couldn't just throw it in the trash. It was an heirloom, after all. And other than frightening her and causing her to lose sleep, it had never done anything to actually hurt her. It seemed more sad than angry. That's when she brought it to the museum. And the moment the doll left her home, the house became blissfully silent. The museum, on the other hand, became anything but. Upon receiving the donation, the museum's curator was both intrigued and disconcerted. Mandy had a way of doing that to people. Like any new addition to the museum, the doll was taken into the back room to be examined and catalogued. First, she was placed in a plastic bag, 
it's not uncommon for old objects, especially those made of soft materials, to wind up infested with insects or other crawlies. Sealing it in a bag would draw them out and contain them so the staff would know what they were dealing with. But putting a creepy antique doll in a plastic bag didn't make it any less disturbing. On the contrary. In fact, as staff continued to go about their work, they'd occasionally hear a rustling of plastic, only to return to find Mandy had shifted position within the bag. Finally, sure she was free from infestation, they removed her from the bag. It was nearing the end of the day, but eager to have her work on the doll complete, rather than wait until morning, one of the museum staff decided to stay and photograph her for the collection, as they did with every new edition. Being alone with the doll after hours in an empty museum was plenty unsettling. She set the doll up, prepared the lights, and uncapped her camera. But as she snapped the first photo of Mandy, there was a loud crash from the shelves behind her. Something large had flown off the shelf and clattered to the floor. The hairs on her neck went instantly rigid, and a sense of dread washed over her. Maybe this hadn't been such a good idea after all. She hurriedly packed up her camera, shut the lights off, and left. When the staff returned in the morning, the workroom was in disarray. Items had been tossed off of counters and shelves, and furniture moved about, almost as though a child had thrown a tantrum. Even once Mandy was placed on the museum floor, though, strange things continued to happen. Lunches would disappear from the staff fridge, only to be found later tucked into drawers. Footsteps were heard when the building was empty. Items like pens and books and pictures would disappear, sometimes reappearing in unlikely places, or maybe not turning up at all. Mandy began to gain widespread notoriety after her story was included in a book of British Columbia legends. Since then, a number of mediums have attempted to discern Mandy's origin story, including 90s TV psychic Sylvia Brown, when Mandy was invited on an episode of the Montel Williams show in the late 90s. While Sylvia said the spirit in the doll was that of a grieving mother, whose twin daughters had owned the doll, and both died of polio, the most terrifying origin story I came across was more tragic still. The story says the doll was found by a man out for a walk on a fall day. The changing leaves and crisp air made for a beautiful, refreshing wander, and the man was deep in thought. But as he passed the abandoned farmhouse, his reverie was broken by the cry of a child. He stopped. No one had lived in the farmhouse for years. If there was a child inside, it was clearly in trouble. He walked up the creaking rotten steps to the front door of the house and knocked. There was no answer. Again, the muffled cry came from inside. He shoved against the rough wood of the sagging door and entered the farmhouse. Stepping lightly through the ruin, he could hear the cry, but realized it wasn't from the house itself, but deeper, drifting up from below the floorboards, from the cellar. 
he headed back outside and circled the house to find the cellar entrance. Wide doors of rough-hewn timber sat at an angle against the base of the house. He grasped the iron handles with both hands and pulled the big storm doors open with a heave, rusty hinges screaming and grinding. Light spilled in down the stairs, sparkling off ancient motes of dust. The darkness was too deep and outside too light for him to see more than a few stairs down. Again, the cry drifted up from below. He began to step carefully down the stairs, testing each board as he went, calling out to whoever might be down there. But only a few steps from the bottom, he froze. Lying in the middle of the floor, covered in a layer of dust, lay the sprawled form of a young girl. Her body was decayed to the point of being unrecognizable, and he only knew it was a girl from the faded flower-print dress she wore. But, cradled between what remained of her arms, was a porcelain doll. It wasn't clear whether an accident had trapped the girl in the cellar, or if she'd been put there as punishment of some kind. But while her tiny body succumbed to dehydration and starvation, her spirit refused to let go. Instead, it moved into the nearest object it could inhabit, the doll. No matter what her origin story, there's no question that Mandy the doll has had a lasting impression on just about anyone who's met her. And even though she's trapped behind glass, if you visit her, I won't blame you for checking the basement before you go to bed. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from author Jess Landry. From the day she was born, Bram Stoker Award winner Jess Landry has always been attracted to the darker things in life. Her fondest childhood memories include getting nightmares from the Goosebumps books, watching the hilarious House of Frightenstein, and reiterating to her parents that there was absolutely nothing wrong with her mental state. Since then, Jess's fiction has appeared in several anthologies, including Tales of the Lost, Twice Told, a collection of doubles, Monsters of Any Kind, Where Nightmares Come From, Lost Highways, Dark Fictions from the Road, and Fantastic Tales of Terror, among others. Her debut screenplay, My Only Sunshine, a coming-of-age horror film set against the harsh prairie winter, has been called a sharp and precise slow-burn horror story by The Blacklist. Jess has also written several other screenplays, including two Lifetime movies set to air in late 2020. She is a member of the Winnipeg Film Group and On Screen Manitoba, and currently sits on the Board of Trustees of the Horror Writers Association. You can visit her online at JessLandry.com, though your best bet at finding her is on Facebook, facebook.com slash JessLandry28, where she often posts cat gifts and references Jurassic Park way too much. Children of the Night Join me for Jess Landry's Mutter, first published in Fantastic Tales of Terror, October 2018. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. She liked it best in the dark, when the lights went out, when the sun went down, when she could walk freely without leering eyes following her every move. In the light, they all looked at her funny, as though they could tell there was something different about her, something they couldn't put their fingers on. Whispers and giggles and averting gazes were the normal she'd known for the past few years. But all that was about to change. She needed one more thing, and she knew exactly where to find it. Under the blanket of night, she clicked open the cabin door and stepped inside. Somewhere over the Atlantic, Edith startled awake. She jerked up in her cot, hand over her heart. That falling sensation, the one she'd been plagued by, more so, over the past three days than before, never failed to rattle her. She peeled the thin cotton sheets off of her damp body and brought her feet over the side of the bottom bunk, catching her breath. Her other hand fumbled against the wall, searching for the light switch. With a flick, 
the yellow-lit bulb illuminated the tiny room, washing over the same taupe, windowless walls, and prickly burgundy carpet that she'd seen for the past 72 hours. I can't wait to wake up to sunshine, she thought, her heart rate steadying itself, and not in a room the size of a jail cell. Edith stood up, cracking her back and rubbing her hands over her skin to warm herself. The sheets of the top bunk were all over the place, the only hint that Hurricane Margot had blown through. Her room at home was always in a state, books strewn about, clothes tossed in places other than her closet, yet her sewing station was kept proper. It was the only thing Edith was truly strict on. A teal flower-patterned dress hung off the sole chair in the room, a reminder Edith had left herself the night before. She'd made the dress for Margot, in hopes that she'd wear it as they disembarked the ship. Though clearly, the girl had thought otherwise. No matter, Edith thought, as she picked up the garment, noticing a slight tear at the hem. She sat back down on her bed, reached under, and pulled out her suitcase. Propping it onto the springy mattress, she tugged at her necklace, which held two small keys, to open the equally small locks she'd placed through the brown leather straps, and popped open the case, pulling out her sewing kit. Scissors, a needle, and thread. That's all Edith needed. An important skill, Edith had told her daughter many times, in their small home on the edge of Frankfurt. Important for people like you and me. Edith's own skills as a seamstress had kept her and Margot sheltered and fed, but tensions in Germany were reaching their boiling point. It was impossible to walk down the street without being bombarded by some kind of Nazi propaganda. Rumors were circling that German citizens were disappearing without a trace simply because of their religion, and that camps had been built far beyond the walls of the city where these people were being detained. All this under the authority of one man, the Fuhrer. She'd known men and women like that in her lifetime, ones that hid in their fortress while they commanded others to do their dirty work. That was not the life she wanted for her daughter. So when the opportunity arose for Edith to travel to New York City for work, she jumped at the chance, using the life savings she kept stored in a secret flap she'd sewn under her mattress to purchase a second ticket for Margot. She promised to take her daughter to see the Empire State Building and to eat a hot dog and ride the subway, all things the little girl had read about in books. And after all the sights had been seen, they would disappear into the countryside, under the cloud of the looming war. If everything went according to plan, Germany would forget the faces of Edith and Margot Brandt. A slight lurch caused Edith to reach out to the walls, her hands easily able to touch both sides of the narrow hallway, the rigid wallpaper rough under her fingertips. Guten Morgen, Peter Vogel, the ship's steward, squeezed by with a wink and a smile, beginning his last shift of this flight. He told Edith and Margot, as he helped them to their cabin before departure, that sudden movements of the airship were perfectly normal. Margot had taken to him right away, something she often did not do. Since they'd left Frankfurt, Vogel had been by their room a few times a day, 
with a suite for Margot, who, he said, reminded him of his daughter back in Munich. The same burgundy carpet from the cabin lined the entirety of the passenger deck, muffling the sound of Edith's Oxfords as she stepped into the lounge. The morning's breakfast crept in through the vents, fresh bread out of the oven, eggs cracked and scrambled, smoked meats grilled through and through. Edith could almost hear their sizzle. Margot had particularly taken to this part of the ship the first day, immediately pulling a chair to the wall of windows in the promenade. Maybe she felt like a giant or a bird watching the ground beneath her dwindle away, people into trees and cities reduced to nothing more than little dots. Edith often wondered what went through her daughter's mind, the ten-year-old with curly chestnut hair whose deep green eyes always said more than her mouth. Margot sat in the far corner of the lounge, hands pressed against the window pane, the only soul in a sea of brown tables and orange upholstered chairs. The wall behind her adorned with a mural painted by Professor Otto Arpke, apparently known for his work on a picture called Das Cabinet de Dr. Caligari, though Edith had never seen it. The mural depicted the world showing the most notable transatlantic voyages in history, from Columbus to Magellan, from Cook to trips taken by the airship's predecessors, the muted browns and blues of the mural attempted to add a sense of adventure to the room, but to Edith it all seemed particularly sad for some reason. These voyages had been monumental, yes, but they'd all come to an end, only a few names and faces remembered when there'd been more involved. Margot pressed her hands and the tip of her nose against the closed windows, her breath lightly fogging the same spot over and over. She'd dressed herself in a pair of brown slacks and a blue striped shirt that they'd made together. Her tight brown curls sat lightly on her shoulder, and when she turned to acknowledge her mother, her green eyes gleamed. Edith considered disciplining her daughter for leaving her side, something she had told her not to do under any circumstances, but the young girl had an adventurous side, a spirit that loved to learn and take in her surroundings. How could she deny a curious child the chance to explore? As it was, they were on an airship. What kind of trouble could she get into on a tin can a thousand meters above the ocean? Edith walked over to her daughter, wrapping her arms around her. Margot was warm, her body loosened at her mother's touch. She stared off out the window, to the rising sun, to the waking world. Her right hand tapped against the pane. Edith kissed the top of her head, catching her daughter's reflection in the glass. Those green eyes, that if you looked hard enough, you'd notice they were about a centimeter too far apart. Her full cheeks, that were always a little rosy, and her smile, when she did, was thin-lipped but meaningful. She followed Margot's gaze out the window, taking a moment to admire the new day. During their time on the airship, they'd seen nothing but blue skies and bluer oceans, and today was no different. The ocean rippled below them, and far off in the distance, faint beaches and deep forests were starting to take shape. It's going to be a beautiful day, isn't it? Edith smiled and crouched beside the girl, sweeping a loose curl off her cheek. Margot paid her no mind. Edith smiled at her in the window's reflection. Margot's green eyes remained locked on something just out of view, her hand tapping in bouts of three 
with short pauses between, her breath fogging up the same spot. The zeppelin swayed to the right, causing Edith to reach out a hand to steady herself. Just a few more hours of this, then we'll be back on solid ground. Then we can disappear and leave it all behind. Margot's head shifted upwards, and Edith's followed. A dark shadow passed over the edge of the ship's rounded frame. As Edith craned her neck forward to get a better look, the door to the dining room opened and in poured the other passengers, some still in their nightgowns, some rubbing the sleep from their eyes. Children slept in the arms of their parents. Parents muttered amongst themselves. A rising din followed as what appeared to be about half the passengers on board the ship piled into the lounge. Vogel closed the door behind them, voices growing as he turned to face the crowd. If you'd please quiet down, he said. Faces Edith recognized from passing turned angry, the men shouting, their children crying. Edith stood up, and Margot gripped onto her mother's belt. She placed her hand on the child's shoulder and gave it a tiny squeeze. Please, Vogel pleaded. If you'll all quiet down, I can explain the situation. Women hushed their husbands and soothed their crying babies. Vogel cleared his throat. Thank you. Now, my apologies for the manner of which you've had to proceed, but a situation such as this has yet to occur on the airship. The other passengers turned to each other, murmuring, exchanging worried glances. Please, please quiet down, Vogel attempted once more. There is no danger to you or your families. Then why have you herded us into the lounge? A woman shouted, a crying toddler in her arms. Why can't we go back to our rooms? Asked another. Others joined in with a flurry of shouted questions. At this time, Vogel shouted over the clamor, please, everyone, at this time, it is in everyone's best interest to be here. Due to these circumstances, we will be conducting a search of your cabins. The crowd roared. Please, with you present. Once we have concluded our search, you will be allowed to remain in your rooms until otherwise indicated. What exactly are you looking for? Did you not search our luggage when we boarded? Aren't we landing soon? Vogel cleared his throat, his hand moving to the door handle. We have delayed landing at the Lakehurst Naval Base until further notice. The crowd erupted as Vogel attempted his escape. Herr Vogel! Edith shouted through the crowd, grabbing Margot's hand as they pushed through. She grabbed him just as he was closing the lounge door. The other passengers livid amongst themselves. Herr Vogel, she said, holding on to Margot. Please, will you at least tell me why we are not landing? What's happened? I'm sorry, he said, attempting to shut the door, his attention leaning to something in the hallway. Please, she said stuffing her fingers in between the door and its jam. What's going on? He frowned, his steel-blue eyes looking into hers. Though they'd only met three days prior, she'd taken to him, much like Margot had. There was a kindness about him. Though, it was all part of his job. He seemed to enjoy every minute he was on board the Hindenburg. He looked over his shoulder at the other crew members, running by before turning back to Edith. A passenger was found dead this morning, he said as he closed the door. The hours dragged on as the crowd grew smaller and smaller. 
Whispers made their rounds. Eyes shifted from one end of the room to the other. One by one, families and single passengers were called out from the room until only Edith, Margot, and another woman and her child remained. The four of them sat in silence. The only sound, the faint humming of the airship's motors. The smell of breakfast faded, along with the ardor for the day. None of it affected Margot, who tapped on the window repeatedly as the New York City skyline floated below. The Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, everything she wanted to see appeared before her eyes in the late afternoon sun. Edith was about to point her toward the Chrysler Building when Vogel and the ship's captain, Werner Richter, entered the room. Fräulein Brandt, he said. The two women exchanged glances, the worry clear in both their eyes. Edith then stood up and grabbed Margot by the hand. Richter said nothing, keeping a watchful eye on Edith and Margot from under his cap. His eyes burrowed, his thick white mustache covering his top lip, his stocky frame squeezed into his double-breasted uniform. Vogel and Richter accompanied them to the cabin, Edith clutching onto Margot's shoulders. The cabin door sat open, everything as Edith had left it so many hours ago. Margot's flowered dress on the stool, patched and ready to be worn. Margot's sheets on the top bunk, tossed aside without a care. Their luggage, however, which Edith had stuffed back under her bunk and locked after fixing Margot's dress, now sat on the floor in the middle of the room. Do you have the keys for Lambrandt? Richter asked. His voice echoed off every corner of the cabin. The keys? she repeated, giving Margot's shoulders a pinch. Margot's hands found hers and squeezed back. To open your luggage. She smiled thinly, thinking of how the scenario could go. Best case, Richter would open the suitcase, rummage through her personal belongings, perhaps embarrass himself a bit while he searched through her nightgown and underwear, but that would be it. They'd move on to the other woman and her child in the lounge. Worst case, he'd find whatever he was looking for. The keys, Edith said, removing the necklace and handing it to Richter. Of course, though I have to ask, what is the meaning of all this? It's simply a formality, Vogel piped up from behind them, shrugging himself into the room while two other crew members gathered at the door. Vogel slyly passed a suite to Margot, who smiled, then hid behind her mother. Richter kneeled down. He used the two tiny keys on Edith's necklace and removed the locks, undoing the worn brown straps. She saw him hesitate for the briefest of moments, cocking his head slightly as though to see if she had noticed. Then he proceeded to open her luggage. Edith held her breath. Every garment was neatly folded and placed with Edith's sewing kit taking up a small section of one side. Funny, Edith thought as Richter dug into the clothes. Everything we own fits perfectly into this suitcase, this box with a handle. There had been much Margot wanted to bring with them. Toys, gramophone records, photographs, all of which Edith had to deny. Edith herself had to leave behind her mother's ring, one passed down through the generations, a ruby stone set upon a silver band. She had planned on giving it to Margot one day, but taking sentimental items was too risky. They would have to rely on their memories instead. Richter tossed their garments aside, carelessly and without shame, until the suitcase was empty, the plaid lining the only thing looking back at him 
save for a few frayed strands of string where the seams met. Margot had sewed the lining herself. She'd beamed when she finished, and rightly so. The girl would make a fine seamstress one day. Richter sighed and stood up. Edith exhaled. Apologize for the intrusion, Fräulein, he said, brushing by them without so much as a glance. It must be the other woman, Edith overheard one of the crewmen say from the hallway. She knelt down, refolding her discarded clothing, Margot crunching on her lollipop behind her. I'm so very sorry, Edith, Vogel said, crouching beside her to help clean up. Please, it's fine, she replied, attempting to brush him away. I've got it under control. It's no worry. Here, let me help. He folded one of her shirts. As he was about to place it in the suitcase, he noticed the stray threads dangling from the seam. Without a word, and before Edith could stop him, he tugged at them. As he pulled, the lining came loose, exposing two tightly wrapped, flesh-colored items, roughly the size of a rolled-up blanket. Vogel looked up, his steel eyes meeting Edith's. There was a moment of silence, of confusion, Vogel's gaze faltering between the two items and Edith. No time to save herself or grab Margot and run. No time to stop Vogel, to silence him before he opened his mouth. So as Vogel cried out for Captain Richter, the only thing she could do was to turn her head to Margot and tell her to run. We've searched the whole ship, Captain, an exasperated crewman said, wiping his brow with his sleeve. We can't find the girl anywhere. Keep searching, Richter muttered from under his mustache. For God's sake, she's just a child. Edith shifted uncomfortably, the handcuffs tight around her wrists, her hands behind her back. Confined to the officer's mess on the lower deck of the ship, she sat in a burgundy vinyl booth with the items in front of her, both rolled tightly and held together by strings of burlap. Photos of the Fuhrer and General Paul von Hindenburg hung in gold-lined frames on the wood-paneled wall, their eyes on her. Her brown blouse stuck to her shoulder where the blood dripped from the side of her face, thanks to one of Richter's overzealous crewmen, who tackled her in her cabin as she tried to pursue Margot. Richter, Vogel, and two other burly crew huddled in the hallway, whispering among themselves, their backs turned to her. The hum of the motors was more prevalent down in the officer's mess, a buzz that sounded like a swarm of bees just outside the walls, waiting for the command to attack. The room stank of wasted alcohol and sweat. Do not disturb us, Richter told Vogel as he walked in, closing the door behind him. The Zeppelin lurched slightly as the captain took a seat across from Edith, checking his watch. She could see the hands ticking by, 3.28 p.m., Richter cleared his throat. I'm not sure what to make of all this, he said, removing his cap and running a liver-spotted hand over his face and through his stark white hair. In all my years, never have I come across this type of situation. I've been on battlefields. I've seen men cut in half, women left bloodied and disfigured. Children, he trailed off, his brown eyes lost in a memory. He exhaled and continued. What I saw today, I do not understand, and I suppose I never will. How does someone so delicate, my God, how could you do such a thing to another woman? He looked at her, genuinely puzzled by what he assumed she'd done. 
He began to speak once more, but closed his mouth before the words came. Instead, he fished in his pockets and pulled out a pair of gloves. He paused after he put them on, but proceeded to unfurl the thinner of the rolled objects in front of him, untying the burlap string with a shaky hand. It stretched over the length of the table as he flattened it out, and not an inch more, some bits stuck together as though they'd been glued. It had started to lose some of its rose coloring, except near the top. He smoothed it out with his hands, pure disgust across his face, until it finally became a tangible object, one that made him turn away in a gagging fit. Edith gazed upon the piece before her, a well-preserved pelt with a perfect seam and near-perfect stitching, her daughter's finest work. What is this? His voice shook as he asked the question, immediately correcting his posture, no doubt praying Edith wouldn't notice his falter. But she did. She had seen it in men like him before, the ones who cowered in their fortresses and demanded others do their dirty work, the ones who would and had come for her and her daughter time and time again, unrelenting, unwavering. But these men hadn't the slightest clue what they were up against, and now that they'd found her out, she had nothing to lose. Behind him, a vent cover silently shook loose, a little hand reaching out to stop it from crashing to the ground. It's Margot, Edith smiled. Vogel paced outside the door, trying to listen to the conversation happening on the other side. The two mechanics waiting with him, Hans and Martin, watched him, smirking. They've been in there for quite some time, Vogel said, debating whether or not to interrupt. I doubt there's much going on. Hans said, scratching his jaw. What's she going to do, beat him with your shoe? Martin chuckled. Vogel shook his head. You didn't see what she did to that woman. He'd passed Edith in the hallway that morning, smiling and unaware. She'd smiled back, her lips a deep red, her green eyes heavy. If only he'd known what she'd done. If only he'd checked on Ingrid Schmidt sooner. Maybe he could have done something. Maybe he could have helped. No one's afraid of a lady, Martin spat. Vogel shook his head again, making his choice. He knocked on the door. When no answer came, he knocked again, calling out for Richter. When that proved useless, he threw the door open, the handle rattling as it hit the wall. Upon first glance, the room was empty. No Richter, no Edith. But as Vogel approached the booth where he had brought Edith, Hans and Martin staying precautiously behind, the captain's body came into view, a stream of blood spilling from multiple tiny wounds in his neck and onto the burgundy carpet. Perhaps we should be, Vogel said. Edith followed Margot through the vents, squeezing her way through the tight spaces with the two rolled-up garments tucked under her arms. They eventually crawled up and out through a mesh of tangled wires and into the ship's interior hull stepping onto a catwalk that led deeper into the ship's core one way and the other to a door-marked engine room. The smell of rotted eggs, slightly more prominent in the hydrogen-filled balloon. The buzz was the loudest here, though it wasn't deafening, the ship's motors flanking them on either side. Around them were the Hindenburg's bones, the Duralumin frames, circled above and below like a thousand black ferris wheels that stretched on as far as Edith could see the reinforced cotton tarp covering every inch of its skeleton. 
It flapped and hummed as the winds pushed against it from the outside. Just beyond the tarp, the sun had begun its final descent. Edith dropped the garments and grabbed hold of Margot as tight as she could, wishing she could squeeze the child into her to spare her from the world around them. She'd gone through so much at such a young age. It wasn't fair. This wasn't the plan. They were never supposed to have been found out. But Margot was young and inexperienced. She'd seen a pretty face and wanted her mother to have it. She hadn't thought about the consequences, how her actions wouldn't go unnoticed. And now, at the edge of their journey, the outcome was looking grim. Mama, Margot managed to say, her lips not quite glued down to the inside of her mouth, so Edith had told her to talk as sparingly as possible during their voyage. Your face. Edith crouched near a terminal with a reflective surface. A large chunk of flesh dangled off her cheek, the spot where she'd been struck earlier and where Richter had managed to strike her once more before she'd struck him over and over with the carved needle she kept hidden in the skin of her wrist. He'd done some damage, exposing her true self underneath. Edith. She turned to see Vogel standing on the catwalk ten feet away from them, an SS-designated dagger clutched in his fist, the words, Mein Herr heist true, carved onto its blade. Margot cowered behind her mother, tiny fingers clutching at her belt. Herr Vogel, Edith said, raising her hands to chest height in an attempt to show him she was disarmed and meant him no harm. Please, you've been so kind to us on this journey. I feel selfish asking one more favor of you. His chest heaved. He shifted his weight from one foot to the other. He said nothing. Look the other way. Go back to the other passengers and forget we were even here. You've killed the captain. What you did to Ingrid Schmidt. I heard her cries from the hallway. When I entered her room, my God, Edith, you skinned her alive. I never meant for any of this to happen. Please believe me. She paused, gently pushing Margot toward the engine room door, her eyes swelling. I want a good life for my daughter. Surely you understand that much? He lowered his dagger, his shoulders dropping, the kind eyes that once looked upon them returning to his face. He held back tears. What are you? he asked. She smiled thinly. Edith started to answer him, but before she could utter a word, Margot came blaring past, a flurry of brown curls and blue stripes. She charged at Vogel, knocking him off his feet, the dagger tumbling onto the catwalk with a clang. Margot, no! Edith cried, rushing for her daughter as she prepared to charge him again. Vogel scrambled, finding the blade just as Edith grabbed Margot and held her in her arms, her back to him. At first she felt a tiny sting. Then the sting grew until it felt as though her whole back were aflame. She faltered, dropping Margot onto the metal catwalk. Blindly, she turned in place, using her arms to shove Vogel away. She felt heat against her hand as she pushed, a crash sounding out as pain shot through her torso. She turned back to Margot, ushering the girl towards the engine room door. Mama! The word shook from Margot's lips as Edith felt the warm rush of liquid dripping down her back, her legs, her feet. Go, Margo. I'll be right behind you. The little girl hesitated, but grabbed their new skins and went toward the door, 
Edith made a full turn towards Vogel. He lay tangled in wires and cables, blood saturating his black uniform and dripping through the catwalk grates underneath him. Do you want to know what I am? She asked, looking down at his broken body. He seemed smaller on his back, paltry, childlike. He said nothing, his eyes wide. There was no need to hide anymore, not in this world. What good was a mother who kept her child hidden because of her own fears? She was no better than the others who sent their followers off to die while they sat in their castles. Edith reached an arm behind her and dug the blade out from where Vogel had made contact, shrieking as she did. The dagger hit the catwalk with a clang. She removed her clothing, one excruciating item at a time until she stood nude. From the wound that Vogel forged in her shoulders, she bore her fingers in, pulling at the skin as though she were removing an adhesive. It ripped quickly, easily, and for the first time in a long while, Edith felt the night's air against her true self. Grabbing onto her brown curls, she tugged from the neck, pulling up and over. The fillers dropped from her face, a trick she'd picked up years ago, using strands of burlap to round out the parts under the skin that made her facial features more human. She'd gotten pretty good at it, though she often noticed Margot's eyes were slightly far apart. The girl was still growing, so there would be imperfections. Edith yanked her claws out from her finger holes, the blood sticking to her fur stringy like strawberry jam. And with a heave, she tore the rest of the skin away, tossing it into a pile between herself and Vogel. She stretched her arms out as far as they could go, bringing her hands to her back, to her rear. Her fingers both found a thick strand of thread, and through a grimace, she pulled the thread, the fabric unspooling the wings she'd kept sewn down for years. She flexed her newly freed appendages, and though she'd clipped them long ago so they'd be better hidden, much like her horns, they were now free. Everything was unfettered. Her body hummed as it released itself from the confines of her suit, one that her and Margot had become accustomed to, to fit into a world that would not accept them in their natural form. Vogel couldn't move. He glared at Edith, observing every inch of her body, quick, uneven breaths escaping his chest. Is this not what you wanted to see? Edith said as Margot opened the door to the engine room. This is what I really am. This is why I have to hide. The way you're looking at me at this moment, this is how I've been looked upon my entire life. A tear spilled from his eye, rolling softly down his cheek. I'm sorry, he muttered, and pulled at the loosened wires. Sparks from the disconnecting wires met the hydrogen-filled air. Before Edith could understand what was happening, a giant fireball sprang to life, consuming all in its path. The off-white tarp lacing the Ferris wheel frame erupted in flames as though the sun had reached out from the sky and set it ablaze. Edith was knocked down, hitting the metal grates hard. Through the blinding light and gaining heat, she turned onto her stomach, pain scorching her every move. But move she did. Edith crawled to the engine room, passing by Vogel's screams, his body consumed by the inferno. The zeppelin suddenly jerked downward, Edith winding her claws through the catwalk, her hands desperately pulling her forward, feeling for a touch of fabric or her daughter's warm skin. She crawled into the engine room, 
and immediately noticed the little girl cocooned in a corner, the flames licking at her feet, her skin already beginning to melt away. Through fire and smoke, she grabbed a hold of Margot, who dropped both of their new, tightly wrapped skins as she did, and squinted through the flames looking for an escape. Margot shrieked in her arms. The fire kissed her fur, burning the skin of her wings. All seemed lost. But then, through the smog, she noticed a hatch on the underside of the catwalk. Hang on to me, Edith shouted as her daughter wrapped her arms around her. She closed what remained of her wings around Margot, maneuvering her body through the climbing flames. The hatch lever seared her palms as she pulled, the door itself falling away into a black abyss. Exhaling, Edith tightened her grip on Margot and leapt into the night. The wind rushed by them, caressing Edith's body in its gentle touch. With her back towards the earth, Edith expanded her charred wings as far as they could, hoping to catch a downdraft to ease the fall. Edith held onto her daughter with everything left in her. Around then, the Hindenburg burned, its massive frame melting away as though it were shedding its own skin. There were screams. Of that, Edith was sure, and they were the last things she heard before they hit the ground. Margot awoke in her mother's arms. She sat up, her body aching. All that remained of the airship was its collapsed frame some fifty yards ahead of her, like old dinosaur bones sticking out from the earth. People closer to the wreckage were screaming at one another. Men rushed the site, attempting to put out what was left of the flames. Mama? Margot turned to her mother, unsure of what to do next. She shook her mother, but Edith didn't move. They were here to start over, her mother and her. She'd chosen a new face, the little girl who lived down the block with the straight red hair and pretty freckles. She'd chosen a new face for Mama, the lady in the cabin across from them, though Mama had gotten mad at her for getting it. They'd even chosen a new name, too. Mama would be Alice, and Margot. She picked a pretty one, Mary. No more Edith and Margot Brandt. They were Alice and Mary Leeds. Hello, someone called out from ahead, a silhouette making its way over to her. She shook her mother again, but the woman didn't stir. Mama, she cried, pulling at her fur, slamming her hands onto her chest, anything to get her to move. Are you all right? Another voice said, the silhouette becoming that of two men. Margot looked back to her mother, her face red and shiny. The fur burned away. Her head was turned to the forest, her green eyes staring blankly off to the distance. The tears came as Margot stood up, all that remained of her burned skin falling from her body as she did. For the first time in her life, she felt the wind passing through her sprouting fur, over her growing horns, against her maturing wings. The men came closer. She hesitated for a moment, looking at her mother one last time. Margot then ran off, leaving behind the only one who'd ever meant anything to her. What's that? One voice said as she ran, the trees growing closer and closer. It looks like the devil, said the other. The flames of the wreckage were nearly extinguished as Margot ran into the night, into the forests of New Jersey.
That was Jess Landry's Mutter, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Thank you, Emily. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you're not already a supporter, head over and have a look at our Patreon page to check out all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app? Ratings and reviews are an easy way that you can help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Join us again next week as we possess your mind with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.